And good evening, everyone. I'm glad you could come out tonight. Uh, <laughs> my name is H.L. Arledge, and this is Bayou Justice. Uh, for some time now, I've been writing a newspaper column by exactly the same name. I have several books on the subject, but none of that matters. What matters is the fact that we're talking about unsolved, unsolved crime in South Louisiana. There are hundreds of murders. There are thousands of assaults and hundreds of robberies that have never, uh, to this day, been resolved. And some of these go back hundreds of years some of these go back just a few months and law enforcement they're overloaded they just sometimes don't know what they don't know and they can't solve these crimes without your help so what's wrong oh. <laughs> okay my wife has interrupted me i'm sorry uh anyway she's telling me that i'm not looking at the camera well you guys, I'm going to be looking at notes a lot of the time tonight because I want to get the facts right. It is is very important that we do this. Yeah, I, I'm I'm fond of saying everybody knows somebody. Somebody knows somebody who knows somebody who knows something. And quite often in the crew crime, the true crime world, you hear that somebody knows something. Well, somebody knows somebody who knows something. It's kind of like the uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I don't know if you've ever played that game. But if you talk about an actor who was in a movie, and that actor was in uh, a movie with someone else, and that, movie with, that guy was in a movie with somebody else, eventually, if you go down six degrees away, you're probably going to run into Kevin Bacon. The same is exactly true with, with true crime. Uh, bear with me on this. If somebody has committed a crime they very seldom can hold it in they'll eventually tell somebody who will tell somebody who will tell somebody this may be over generations so i had a, a sheriff's deputy say to me hl why does this stuff matter uh, i was looking into the death of the stripper she she was a dancer she worked between hammond and tickfall at a club over there uh, she had died several years had went by and they hadn't accomplished anything. And I talked to one of the sheriff's deputies that worked the case and he said, HL, why does this matter? Why does it matter? Her, her parents are gone. Uh, most of the family doesn't seem to care. The two main suspects in the murder are dead. What possible, possible uh, thing could you gain by reopening this case? But still, I, I felt like there had to be some resolution. They, this, this young lady, she was working, by the way. She, her, her husband left her. She was raising a six-year-old little girl. Her only option that she felt could, could pay the bills was to take this job as a dancer. She was doing the best that she can, and she was killed. Her car was left at 190 and uh, 55 there in Hammond. And for a long time, they didn't know what happened to her until one day uh, a piece of her skull turned up and, and they figured it out. She was killed. And the two leading suspects did eventually die. So I wrote the whole story, covered everything, uh, both Tangeboe Parish and Livingston Parish. The sheriff's office from both sides investigated. And I covered that, covered a lot of information that they had 
they had uh, released to the public, not necessarily things that they did not release, but everything that I could find on it, I put out there. And I would say maybe three days later, I get a email and ultimately a phone call from the victim's daughter. She had been six years old when her mother was killed. She lives in Texas today. And she said, HL, all my life, she said, I have wondered what happened to my mother. I lay, I lie in my bed at night trying to go to sleep, wondering what happened to mom. And I just appreciate you taking the time to try to answer that question. So, so people care, families care. So even if law enforcement has moved on because they don't have the resources or whatever the case may be, the families still care and they still deserve help. So some little piece of the puzzle you may think means absolutely nothing, maybe just the thing to click in some detective's mind and solve the case. So I'm telling you, if you know anything about any of these cases, or if you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, the, the key there is to share this information. As you hear tonight, we're going to talk about five unsolved crimes in South Louisiana. As you hear about these crimes, pass them on. Tell other people because somebody out there knows what really happened. We're going to talk about Jerry Monas. Jerry Monas was a store clerk in Covington, Louisiana. She was working in a junior food store. She was the night manager. Uh, every night, uh, she closed up shop for just a couple of hours to restock the shelves. During that time, she went missing. The next day, the day manager finds that Jerry is gone, and so is the cash register and the safe. Uh, the police found Jerry the very next day. She had been killed. Uh, and she was a parish, a whole parish away. Today, they still have not solved that case. The second case we're going to talk about is the case of Millard and Lorraine Anthony. Now, this is a couple that was found outside of a meet in a ditch. Their car was in a ditch. They were dead. And the sheriff surmised, Frank Edwards was the sheriff at the time. He surmised that they died from uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. He called the coroner out. The coroner came out and said, yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. There was no autopsy done. It was four o'clock in the morning. No one knows why these folks were on the road. They were not known to be drinkers. They were in a ditch. They were dead. And there was no evidence that they'd ever tried to get out of the car. So we don't really know if they died before or after the car, after the car went into the ditch. Was it an accident? Was it murder or was it suicide? We just don't know. We're going to talk about that case. The third one we're going to look at, uh, Butch Valencia. He was a police officer for St. Bernard Parish for many, many years. And uh, eventually he, um, well, <laughs> you know how it is in politics. If you're on the wrong side, new sheriff goes in, you might be going out. So that's exactly what happened to Bush. He lost his job when they got a new sheriff. And about four months after that, he lost his life. He was killed outside a restaurant, this police officer. So we're going to take a look at his murder. Uh, and no question about that one being a murder. We're also going to talk about Janessa Hartley. She died in uh, Sherwood Forest in Baton Rouge. A masked man approached her car and shot her. 
we're going to be talking about that. That was just uh, maybe three years ago. And the last unsolved murder we're going to talk about is that of David Bell from Walker, Louisiana, construction company owner, wonderful guy. And he, uh, he was at his office. His office was on his property outside his house. He answered the door and someone shot and killed him. So we're going to be talking about all of those cases tonight. And, you know, those are all local to you. You know somebody who knows somebody. So we have a very good chance of solving those cases. I know some folks want me to talk about the Salonia Reed case, which I was involved in. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. We'll probably do a full show, though, on that at some point. Uh, right now, before we get into the details of these five cases, I thought it might be fun to jump back to... Uh, I've been doing this a long time. been doing this for 40 years or more. And I thought it might be interesting for you to see uh this is a story from wwl television a friend of mine by the name of bill elder at the time he he was a newscaster for channel four I, he was not a friend of mine until this story but we became very good friends after this this was during the devil worship upheaval big satanist scare in the ponchatoula area so check it ponchatoula out times newspaper reporter hl ulrich Ulrich was the first to report on the happenings that took place on the cattle ranch of Betty Abair and Rose Allen. I did the initial story. Uh, I thought that was going to be the only story, but it seemed like the more... H.L. Ulrich's wife, Kathy, said that she became concerned for her husband, but at first could not put her finger on it. I was scared, but, you know, I didn't figure anything would happen. I figured, you know, it was animals, you know, and that they weren't going to fool with anybody else, and I didn't think any that they would even try to harm him for writing the stories. The Ulrichs say it almost cost them the life of their 10-month-old baby. It seems that Kathy Ulrich had just dropped her husband at work and had stopped briefly at a store next to her home. Pouring down rain, the baby's two months old. She didn't want to get the baby out in the rain, so she parks by the door, steps inside, and only in there a second, she comes back out and here's a woman running across the parking lot with our child. She had his carrier and I grabbed the carrier and I turned to set him down, you know, so I could do something. I didn't know what I was going to do, but when I grabbed him and turned with him, she jumped in her car. That wasn't the only thing to happen to the Allridges. This is what I found in my car. I stopped at another convenience store. I went in, I bought a Coke. I wasn't in but five minutes. And I came back out, and I found this stuff into my seat. And this is frightening. If you'll notice, on the handle, it's a strange face, and it, it looks to me like Satan. I don't know who did it. Uh, apparently, they were following me because it was put in there in just that quick amount of time. And this, this frightened me. It didn't stop me from writing, but it, it made me guard my family a lot closer. And I, they don't stay alone now, and I usually don't go anywhere without my gun. We both carry our gun with us all the time. And, you know, I mean, I feel like he should be able to write what he sees and what he hears and what he thinks. <laughs> yeah, many, many moons ago, and 
And those of you that know my wife today know that's not her. So that just shows you how much time has passed. However, the the child that they mentioned, the 10-month-old child, that my son, I still have him. Uh, in fact, he works for the Tangible Parish Sheriff's Office. So let's, let's talk about this crime in Covington, Louisiana. Let me uh, pull that up for you, and we'll take a look at it. Um, Jerry Monas... I do not have a photo of her. Um, Jerry Colbert Monis, she was born September 11th, 1934. She died on January 8th, the birthday of Elvis Presley, 1991. Now, um, let me pull up the details here. So it happened, uh, this was uh, a report from the Associated Press. They were the first people to report on this crime. They said that the... Uh, Police feared someone had kidnapped a Covington woman. That at first they didn't even realize her name, uh, release her name. Uh, then eventually they said St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's deputies planned to search again today. So this was the next day for a convenience store clerk kidnapped during the robbery. The night she vanished, Jerry C. Monas, 56, had been working the overnight shift at the Junior Food Mart, which is 60 miles north of New Orleans. Again, this is all coming from the Associated Press. So uh, they are um, reporting to the United States as a whole. This, this, these kind of stories get circulated. So I guess they were figuring people didn't, they knew where New Orleans was, but maybe not Covington. Uh, Dorothy Walker, she was the day manager for the store. She came in about 5 o'clock the next morning. It was Monday morning. Um, so whatever happened to Jerry happened Sunday night. Uh, they actually think that it was probably about 2 in the morning, so 2 that Monday morning. Monday morning, Dorothy comes in, and she finds that Jerry Monas' pickup truck is parked outside. Her purse is inside uh, Jerry had apparently put her lunch into this electric oven and it was still there. Um, I'm not sure if it automatically cut off or if it was still on and burnt. I, I don't know the details there, but the cash register was gone. And so was the store safe. So immediately the, uh, Dorothy, she calls the police and says, hey, you know, I think we were robbed and something has happened to Jerry. She never suspected Jerry as being involved. Some of the locals did, as you know, people will always talk. Um, so at the time, that next day, the next, um, all throughout the day, people are talking, trying to figure out, hey, was Jerry involved? What happened to her? What happened? What went down? And blah, blah, blah. And then they got the bad news. Um, this is from UPI, United Press International. And they said, police found the body of convenience store clerk kidnapped during a robbery. Her body was found in the Bogoshita River Tuesday afternoon. Uh, this according to a spokesman from the St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office. Deputies found Jerry's body in nearby Washington Parish. This is near the community of Enon, about 20 miles northeast of Folsom. Uh, it says near the junction of Louisiana Highway 25 and Highway 40. The Associated Press added to that uh, the Washington Parish Sheriff's Office because technically it was in Washington Parish. Right, it was right across the parish line. Uh, they got a call on Tuesday from Hunter's from Hunters, January 8th, 1991, 
They got a call from hunters who found a bloody bone on the southern bank of the river. And this according to uh, Sheriff's Department official Larry Sicko of Washington Parish. He said that their deputies had been searching the woods and uh, near where this bone was found. And they eventually found Jerry's blue jeans and her underwear. And uh, people in her family were able to identify those pieces, those articles of clothing as belonging to her. Now, uh, the reason I mentioned the hunting part, because when this, when I originally wrote about this in the Hammond Daily Star, people reached out to me and said, hey, uh, hunting, who, what, what the heck were they hunting in, in January? And, and I checked, I checked on this. It was officially still squirrel season. So they could have been hunting squirrels. So don't jump to any conclusions about the guys that found the bodies. And by the way, it was also duck season and coot season. Now, I don't know what a coot is. I, I thought I knew what a coot was, uh, but I didn't know there was a hunting season on them. So somebody in the comments might want to tell me a little bit more about coot season in South Louisiana. But anyway, that's the bad news. These hunters found Jerry's body. They, they called uh, Washington Parish, went to the scene when they got the call, and then they called St. Tammany Parish, the sheriff's deputies over there, who then sent out St. Tammany Search and Rescue. And these folks, um, they found Jerry's body about 200 yards downstream this happened at about 10:52 wednesday morning so they they found the clothing on tuesday they found the bone fragment on tuesday uh remember she disappeared we think about two o'clock monday morning and then wednesday just before lunch they actually found her body. The body was stuck on a log in the river, so it seems that they had just thrown her off a bridge. Uh, Jerry was partly nude. She had a, all she had on was a sweater, and it was bunched up around her neck, around her throat. So this led people to wonder if she was, in addition to being robbed, if she might have been raped. Um, before tossing Jerry off a bridge, her slayer covered her mouth and eyes with gray duct tape. So this is, this is kind of interesting to me. Uh, that says to me that maybe they robbed the store wearing a mask. And at some point they still didn't want Jerry to know who they were. So they, they covered her eyes maybe. And that, that insinuates that maybe they had not or initially planned to kill Jerry. So that, I don't know, just again, some speculation. The monster, uh, their monsters that did this used a small rope. They tied her hands and her ankles together behind her back. Um, and then they shot her in the head. Now the initial report said she was shot in the head with a rifle. Uh, later the sheriff's office clarified that it had been a shotgun to the back of her skull. The bone found by the hunters, this fragment, was caused by the shotgun blast. The St. Tammany coroner in St. Tammany Parish um, conducted an autopsy that happened the following weekend. They were trying to determine both the time of death and whether or not Jerry had been raped, but they never, they never were, they never reached any conclusions regarding that. 
That week, the Junior Food Mart Corporation on Monday, the Monday, the day she disappeared, Junior Food Mart offered a $5,000 reward for information. When the body was found, they upped the reward to $10,000. And then when no arrest had been made the following year, they upped the reward to $15,000. Junior Food Mart was determined to help Crime Stoppers find who killed Jerry Monas. They, they weren't so much worried about who robbed the store. We don't even know what was in the safe for the cash register. Uh, they primarily were, were concerned about Jerry and wanted to make a statement to, to make sure that people knew this, this wasn't going to happen again. But unfortunately, these people were never caught, or at least not officially. Detectives did not know if the robbers forced their way into the store or if Jerry opened the door and let them in. A rear door appeared broken, and police believed the store was normally closed uh, as she was, as Jerry would restock between 2 and 4 a.m. So they think that she usually locked the door during that time, closed the store down, and maybe that's when somebody kicked in the back door. They may not have even realized anybody was in the store at that time. Police uh, suspected the robbery occurred between those hours of 2 and 4 Unfortunately, um, would-be store patrons saw a dozen pickups and vans at the store overnight. So they, there was a lot of uh, calls about vehicles that had come in, but none was definitive. So we really don't know what kind of vehicle um, Jerry may have left in. The thieves, we do know, drug a 400-pound safe. And that's why I say thieves. Uh, most of these original news reports said thief. Uh, but 400 pounds is a pretty big safe. I'm thinking there's at least two men involved in this. Uh, they, they estimate it was more than $8,000. And they took the safe out the back door. They could not open it. That tells me, again, that Jerry was not involved. Investigators from both St. Tammany and Washington Parish initially believed that three men stole the safe. Later, FBI found tire tracks of a dolly that was used to move the iron box. So, uh, yeah, so, so maybe not three men because they didn't carry it that far, but they still had to carry it far enough to get it onto this dolly. I guess it still could have been one big guy, but, but I'm skeptical. Uh, one week after Jerry's disappearance, St. Tammany Parish coroner Ted Brushwitz uh, said an autopsy showed a high-powered rifle, not a shotgun. Okay, so it's the opposite of what I said earlier. Created the wound in the back of Jerry's head. He said his office could not determine anything else. So they didn't know for sure when she died or whether or not she had been raped. Uh, Larry Psycho or Seiko, forgive me if I'm saying your name wrong. It's C-I-K-O. He told the television crew, we have some possible suspects from other cases. We don't know if Miss Monis knew her abductors or if they killed her because they thought she had seen them or knew something about them. They may have been regular customers at the store. At this time, Larry said, we just don't know. He said authorities believe someone kidnapped Jerry, planning to force her to open the safe, and then killed her so she would not identify them. St. Tammany Parish Sheriff, uh, Sheriff Patrick Canulet said the safe robbery involving convenience stores in the parish was one of about 12 that had happened in the three weeks prior 
to that. So he thinks it was a whole ring of folks going on. And that, that reminds me very quickly, as I'm saying this, I have to say this, of the KK robberies. You remember around that same time of uh, KK's, that, that store over in southwest Louisiana, very similar robbery. They took the safe in that, I believe. Uh, anyway, he said there had been about 100 similar convenience stores, uh, robberies in South Louisiana, uh, even uh, many in the, in the New Orleans area. Still, the Folsom case was first in Louisiana history involving both kidnapping and murder that we know of. Whoever did this, the sheriff said, is a brutal, brutal group of individuals. This is a horrible crime. This is the most brutal and heinous murder I've seen in 11 years as sheriff and my 20 years total in law enforcement. Two weeks later, investigators hoping for a break in the case began intensive questioning of Jerry's family members, focusing primarily on her husband. St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's te uh, detectives and FBI agents questioned John Modus multiple times. The sheriff told reporters that investigators interviewed the husband, uh, and it, who was an employee at ITT Hartford Insurance Company in New Orleans, in hopes that he could give them something that might suggest who is responsible for the crime. The sheriff declined to say if investigators considered John Monas a suspect. Uh, he said, we are pushing for, uh, we are pursuing a lot of information. We have received uh, several telephone calls from people with potential leads. We are following them all in hopes that they will eventually lead somewhere, Sheriff Kenyulet said. Um, we're talking intensively to not just the husband, but also other family members. The FBI is trying to develop a profile of potential suspects, and we are assisting all we can. Again, that happened in 1991. Several years later, 1998, January 1998. So truly, truly seven years later, Sheriff Kenyulet, left office he was replaced by jack strain jack strain when he was running for office uh made a big deal about the jerry monas case that he was going to solve it uh and when he went into office in january of 98 he charged wayne fussell 42 a guy from franklinton with jerry's murder fussell had gone to prison in 1992 so the year after Jerry was killed for the rape of a woman in a meet. Um, however, according to the grand jury that set him free, the sheriff's office offered no evidence to suggest that he killed Jerry Monas. There really was no tie to that murder at all. So about two weeks later, uh, that guy walked free. And today, no one has been charged uh, beyond that with the murder of Jerry Monas. So that, that's the situation there. Let's see, I'm going to, uh, a lot of people said, hey, HL, you can't cover five cases in 45 minutes to an hour. And they're probably right. I, I purposely selected cases that were important, but we didn't have a lot of information to go on. Um, I've got several cases I want to talk about that will easily take an hour, if not more. So we, we may... We may run out of time. I don't know, but I'm going to try to get through them as best I can. If we need to revisit some later, we will. Let's jump over to the Anthony's. So I mentioned earlier this uh, Willard and uh, Lorraine Anthony. Uh, sorry, Millard uh, and Lorraine Anthony. Miller was 35. Lorraine was 32. They were from Greensburg. 
and they were found just east of Amy. Their body was found in a river embankment right off the road. Yeah, I'm trying to see what the, oh, here it is, 10 foot drop. So it went off, their car went off the road and it fell 10 feet into a ditch, a, a ravine near the Tanspaho River. Sheriff Edwards uh, told, uh, Frank Edwards, told reporters they found no signs that Millard or Lorraine attempted to back the car out of the ditch. Apparently, he said the car had been rolled gently down the inclined shoulder. He also noted the car was not damaged in any way. And that, that really stuck with me. The sheriff said the car had been rolled gently down the inclined shoulder. So not... Not they drove the car gently or the car rode gently down there. It says the car had been rolled gently. That insinuates that somebody pushed the car um, after, I don't know, I'm not going to say when, but at some point you would assume it would be after these two passed out because they didn't try to get out of the car. They didn't try to open the car. They did not try to break in this car the car just simply went off the ravine that could have happened in a track traffic accident but if it was one person you could say well it was a heart attack you know but or it could have been again they didn't do any autopsy so we don't know uh they're guessing carbon monoxide poisoning that somehow happened after the car hit the ditch so i i mean did they run off the road and, and hit their heads they said they didn't notice any damage on them, uh, any injuries to them or the car. All they know is they were unconscious and actually not breathing. So again, the carbon monoxide poisoning. The sheriff uh, then called the coroner off out. Uh, let's see, Tangible Parish Coroner, Dr. Charles Genovese. He pronounced the couple dead at the scene and had the bodies taken to Brown Funeral Home. So he pronounced them dead, wrote on this set death certificate, I guess, that they had died from carbon monoxide poisoning. There was no autopsy. There was no investigation whatsoever. So we don't know really what happened to this couple. Uh, the following afternoon, one day after they pulled them out of the ditch at 4 o'clock in the morning. And again, remember, they said that these folks didn't drink. They didn't do the bar room. So why were they... Why was a Greensburg couple on the road in a meet at four o'clock in the morning? So there's definitely some questions not answered. The very next day after they dug them out of the ditch, Reverend R.W. Watkins conducted religious services at the funeral home and the couple was buried in the uh, Lawrence Missionary Baptist Church near La Ranger. So they were buried the next day after they pulled them out of the ditch. So no time for an autopsy if they wanted to do one. Um, it, it's very, very strange. Very, very strange. Um, again, the bodies found by the squirrel hunters. A lot of people talked about that or, or, or what kind of hunters it might have been. Their names were, were never released. One week after the funeral service, Sheriff Edwards told WWL-TV, we do not know why the people were out that late or that early, um, but we know that they were not drinkers. We do not know why they did not attempt to exit the car or move the car in any way. Uh, however, the sheriff said, we have no reason to suspect foul play. 
that always drives me nuts when they say that. Well, you don't have any reason to say it, but you don't have any reason not to say it. It sounds very suspicious to me. So again, we don't have a clue what happened to this couple. Uh, I talked to their daughter uh, at some point. Uh, she contacted me and said, hey, I appreciate you covering this case. Um, Miller was originally a native of LaRanja. That's why they ended up burying him there. But he lived in Greensburg with his wife. He was employed by the Louisiana uh, Reforestation Unit. Uh, Lorraine also lived in Greensburg, but she was originally from Tylertown, Mississippi. Uh, let me see if there's anything else really here. That's really about it. That's really about all we know about that case. Uh, but very, very suspicious what happened to them in 1969. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, I had talked about the fact that Jerry Monas was found in January and the whole squirrel hunter thing. Um, this couple was also found by hunters and it was in May, 1969. I would like to know what they were hunting, you know, or were they hunting legally? That's, that's another question something that we can look into uh so yeah so that's a couple of cases we've got three more that we're going to look at before we're done i think um i'm gonna stop for a moment again i said people were asking about the reginald reed case we're, we'll end up doing an entire episode on that for sure there's but there's so much to cover uh the the important bit of that news is after 30 years, her husband is in prison where he belongs. Uh, that is the very, very important thing. Um, but, but anyway, we'll jump in there and I'll show you. The easiest way for me to sum up my involvement is to let the folks at Channel 2 do it for me. Amanda Hammond will finally face justice after walking free for decades. A jury convicted Reginald Reed for the murder of his wife, Salonia, in 1987. God. Investigative Kingdom reporter H.L. Arledge has followed this case since he was in college. These officers who were working this case were working it around the clock. Some people didn't go home 24 hours a day, including the chief. They were so dedicated to this, and I was there visiting with them every day. So I kind of became vested in it at that point. And over the years, it just blew me away that it just fizzled out because the the detectives at that time were confident they had the right guy but for whatever reason the powers that be wouldn't charge him. Salonia Reed was found beaten to death in her car behind a gas station. The station was only minutes away from the couple's home on Apple Street. A hike went straight through the woods from where her body was found to their door in 10 minutes. But how did Reed steer clear of being convicted? Arledge says Reed's political ties in the area helped. Two years after the murder, Reginald Reed ran for mayor of Hammond. The, the officers working this case had him as suspect number one, but through his political connections, he never was charged. After decades of remaining unsolved, the Tangipahoe District Attorney's Office reopened the case after reading Arledge's cold case column. With the help of detectives from state police, they were able to tie DNA evidence from a cigarette to Reginald. They went in and got all of the files, all of the evidence from the Hammond Police Department. They went and found all the retired police officers, brought them all together, reopened this case, and 
As they say, it's history. Reginald Reed was found guilty of second-degree murder by a jury in 2022. The case that was swept under the rug decades ago was successfully solved by the hard work and cooperation of detectives, the district attorney, and an investigative reporter that never gave up. We have to prove... <laughs> oh, well, cut it off. But yeah, we, we do have to prove that the last line in that was we have to prove that our justice system works. And, and we do. And that's that's what we're doing tonight. That's exactly what we're doing. Uh, police officers, you know, there's a lot of bad press related to police officers in the last few years. But honestly, honestly, we have some wonderful people in law enforcement, but they are largely underpaid and, and with that you may not get the best people in the world because you're not willing to pay them the, our politicians make a whole lot more money than our police officers and and that's that's a bad thing that that's something that uh i think we need to make a correction on i'm looking here uh oh look uh, i'm looking at the uh the live chat here and someone's letting me know uh, this is a guy from Pennsylvania. He says a coot is a migratory game bird that's something like a duck. So that explains why uh, they have duck season at the same time. It seems as if uh, it's always animal or hunters or mushroom hunters <laughs> that come across d diseased individuals. That's absolutely true. You know, some of these people who uh, kill people and leave them in the woods there there were several up in saint helena parish several bodies over a 10 20 year period that absolutely would have never been found if it weren't for people deer hunting up there so that that's that's absolutely the truth all right let's see the next case that we want to talk about let's see i've, I've kind of gotten distracted thinking about this whole reginald reed thing uh but trust me there's a lot to talk about there that's just an amazing case and i'm just i am so happy that 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 is is over and done with so uh we're going to talk about uh janessa hartley next no no i i want to touch on butch valencia so butch here's here's story uh, i'll try to speed this up so butch uh again he was saint bernard parish i am gonna have to look at the notes because i'm not sure of the exact date let me take a look at that 1984 so it was uh a couple of days before christmas 1984 and butch he is a former police officer he's then working as a taxi cab driver of all things he's also an electrician works part-time as an electrician and works as a taxi cab driver that was long before we had uber and that sort of thing and so apparently he knew law enforcement he was in law enforcement for like i think 27 years so the guy really didn't know anything else that was his primary uh mode of uh of employment was working for the sheriff's office so when he, he lost that job um we don't know what he did beyond those two things i just mentioned electrician and working as a taxi cab driver the night that he died his wife cheryl dropped him at a restaurant uh, outside of new orleans and it was a it was a bar and grill let me see what the name of this place is um by the way there's still a one thousand dollar reward for um if you can help find butch's killer uh lose seafood and lounge this was at 703 east judge perez drive uh near new orleans 
Uh, it again, it happened around Christmas in '84. In 1985, the sheriff's office, St. Bernard Parish, released a composite sketch of the man that they thought had killed him. Um, the barmaid that was working there, the bartender, uh, she described him as six foot two, weighing 230 pounds. He had a pot belly, um, brown hair, brown beard, mustache. She said he wore a red flannel shirt and blue jeans. So what happened? He was sitting at the bar talking to Butch and the person next to them overheard uh, Butch asking him about some money that he owed him. And uh, Butch had actually told his wife that she was going to drop him off there to collect some money from this guy that, that had owed him money. Uh, somebody sitting at the bar heard him call the person Val. It was a guy, but heard him uh, referred to as Val and saying, Hey, you know, I, I really need this money. I'm really in dire straits. And he said, well, I am too. I don't think I can help you. Um, I do have some money in my truck, but it's not everything that I owe you. And with that, this guy, Val, uh, said, oh, my goodness, my truck. I just realized I, I think I had locked, I locked my keys in the truck. Well, the guy that was sitting next to them just happened to be a locksmith. And he said, oh, hey, I can help you. Let me follow you guys out. I'll, I'll get you in your truck. So they went out, went out to the parking lot. It was a yellow Chevrolet pickup got out there and just as the guy was like two feet from the truck he says oh i'm so silly me i i uh, i didn't even lock the truck anyway so the the keys are inside no problem so he kind of waved the locksmith off and locksmith turned around and went back to the bar um before he got to the door of the bar restaurant he heard a noise he heard he couldn't tell what they were saying, but it sounded like a threatening voice. And he turned back around to see this guy, Val, with a gun pointing it at Butch. And with that, he went inside the locksmith, went in, talked to the barmaid, and asked her to call the police. They called the sheriff's office. But as she was dialing the number, they heard a shot. They then ran outside, found Butch in a puddle of blood in the parking lot, the yellow pickup was on its way out. And that's all we know. The other, only other clue uh, was when they were talking about the money at the bar that, that uh, Val apparently owed Butch, they mentioned Jefferson Downs. They mentioned the racetrack. So it had something to do with that. That's all we know. But if you know more about that, I would certainly like to hear from you. And I'm sure uh, so would the St. Bernard Parish Sheriff's Office. So let's get over and talk about Janessa Hartley. Janessa, I mean, we're, we are running out of time. So I'm going to tell you as quickly as I can. Janessa was, uh, but again, I see, I don't, I'm not really good with numbers. You know, I don't remember like how old she was and things like that. So let me look. Okay. 57. So she was about to celebrate her 57th birthday. So she's 56 years old. Her and a friend named Linda, uh, meet some other girls and they go to a restaurant. They're celebrating her birthday that night. This is January 15th, 2019. Um, 
so after that, they had they had a few drinks. They ate nothing serious, no serious amount of alcohol, anything like that. And then Linda had rode with Nessa with Janessa. So she she went and dropped her off at her house. But you know, as as ladies do, they're sitting outside, they're having a conversation in the car in front of her house. The motor is running in the SUV. It's a Honda CRV. Uh, sports utility vehicle. Linda Donnelly is her friend. And so she's at Linda's house and, and Nessa just lived a few houses down. So she's dropping Linda off. They're sitting, sitting in the car, having a conversation. And then Nessa looks over and she sees the shadow of someone behind an oak tree in the yard. And so what was that? And then when they pointed, this person came out from behind the tree this person had a hoodie on and they had a mask over their mouth and nose, you know, kind of like the old Western style thing. Uh, you couldn't see what it was. And they're waving a gun. The person walks up to the SUV, grabs the door handle and shakes on it and is yelling something. Now they had the air conditioner running in the car. They could not hear what the guy was saying, but they knew he was saying something. The doors were locked to the vehicle and he couldn't get it open. So Janessa revved the engine of the car thinking, well, let's scare the guy off. You know what, I mean? what could she do? And at that point, the guy fired into the driver's side door and shot Vanessa. At that point, uh, Linda, trying to help, reaches over, puts the car in reverse and helps push the gas to get the car out of there. The car backs down the driveway. The guy is still trying to get on the door handle, trying to open the thing. The car bounces out. This is in Sherwood Forest, bounces out in the highway, and uh, another vehicle's coming by, a van. They blow the horn just as the car pulls out in front of them. The car ends up in the driveway of the neighbor across the street, and the van speeds on, doesn't stop. And at that point, the the van kind of goes up, uh, Linda reaches over, puts it in neutral, and then it bounces it back down the driveway and ends up on the side. When the police got there, that's that's where it was. And Vanessa was in the driver's seat, kind of slumped over, and they pulled her out of the car and, and tried to do CPR, tried to bring her back, but they did not have any luck. Um, the police said that it was probably a carjacking. Linda believes it was probably a, a failed carjacking. Um, the police said because of this, just where the, this street was, um, let's see if we can find that. Um, they were saying that the, the, the street is just right in the direction of where, I don't know, where known carjackers are driving. I don't know. It's kind of strange there, but, um, we find the I was going to find the actual statement here. Um, I'm not seeing it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time digging for it. But oh, here it is. Here it is. Okay. Uh, in another television interview, uh, Baton Rouge Police Department Detective Ross Williams agreed with Linda, explaining that this neighborhood is a throughway between two major roads. Some of the side streets that cut through from Old Hammond Highway to Goodwood are the ones that access the throughway, William said. Uh, he said one of those cut through roads is Havenwood Drive, which is where this happened, uh, or actually it intersects the road where this happened, which was uh, Brookshire Avenue. 
and then that's near the address where Nessa and Linda sat in the Honda CRV when all of this happened. The neighbor, um, the neighbor who was actually Linda's fiance, or fiance's, her fiance and her neighbor, he had security cameras as most people do nowadays and he actually caught the whole thing on film and it was exactly as i've described it to you already uh, but <clears throat> to this day they never caught the person who shot nessa they don't know it's very possible that that van actually the, the van seemed to slow down when it got around the curb and the guy with the gun ran across the lawn in that direction it's very possible that they were with him and uh, he got in the van and left with them, or it could just be purely coincidence and they have nothing to do with it. But it seems like if that were the case, they would have come forward. They have not done so. All right. Um, that said, we're going to step over and take a look at the David Bell case. So I'm running over, and I apologize for that. I, I had planned on doing this for about 45 minutes. Uh, oh, I said 45 to an hour, so maybe we can get through this that quickly. But the important thing I want to drive home is hear these facts, share these facts, because somebody out there knows something. And the more people that hear these stories, the more people that are likely to come forward and help us. Uh, I promise you we'll do fewer cases, probably just a single case next week. Uh, because I have a very big one that I want to talk about. I've got several big ones I want to talk about. Before we're done, we are going to talk about the disappearance of Barbara Blunt. We're going to talk about the murder of Margaret Kuhn, uh, Donna Baum. Maybe these names ring bells with you. Uh, there are several, several serious unsolved murders in South Louisiana that we really need to get to the bottom of and, and help law enforcement to to take an interest in these cases again. Uh, they're overloaded, but we need to, to make them know, help them know that, that we still care about these unsolved crimes. All right, so um, once again, we're gonna talk about, sorry, give me one second here and I'll show you David Bell. So David Bell was a contractor. Um, he he was in the service for a while, and uh, he came home, inherited the family's business, or joined the family's business. He was partners with two brothers, and they ran this construction company, and they, they had such a wonderful reputation. Uh, you know, even though David was in the construction business, if you, if you needed, if a friend or relative needed his help, he was there with his hammer. That, that was a quote from somebody. Uh, that was his thing. He just, that's what he was all about. Um, yeah, I don't want to go into the beginning of this. There, there was a big, long story. They were, they had a boy that robbed a sweet shop and police were trying to find the pistol that he had used in, in, in this field in Walker. And that's how they stumbled upon David Bell's wallet. So that's, that's a long story in itself, uh, and you can read about it if you want to pick up the Bayou Justice book. But the, but the short of that is they found his wallet. David Bell, they suspected, had been killed 
uh, in part of a robbery, but then they find his wallet and it was very clear that he had not been robbed and nothing in his office had been stolen. So very, very important facts there. Uh, when all of that came to light, that changed a lot of things. Uh, uh, David was shot. They took him to the hospital. He died at Lady of the Lake uh, Medical Center in Baton Rouge the following day. Uh, what happened was David had went to the bowling alley there in Denham Springs. It's gone now. It's uh, Putt and Bowl at 744 South Range Road in Denham Springs. He would go there every week. He was part of a league. And he would always uh, bowl with that league. I talked to a guy named Jeff Oliphant, very good friend of David's and, and one of his fellow league bowlers. And he told me that David was there like clockwork. He was there every week. Gretchen, uh, Gretchen Bell is David's wife. He said that she never, ever came to his games uh, for whatever reason, never came to watch him bowl until the night that he died she uh, came in and he said she was on her cell phone pacing up and down the whole time uh he left there uh she left there they left in separate vehicles and he left there and went to his office and that's where he was ultimately killed she left there now this is where it gets strange because she told police that she never went to his his uh, bowling tournaments, which was true. That's in line with what Jeff was saying. But she said that she didn't go that night either, that she went to her sister's. And she always went to her sister's and stayed there until he was done bowling. And that's where she said that she was. So that was kind of strange. But uh, according to Jeff, she, she was on the security cameras there. It was very clear for whatever reason. She didn't want to say she was there, but she was definitely there. Uh, Jeff said that David left between 9.10 and 9.20 going home. Uh, Gretchen got home about 9.30 and found his body. So a very, very short window of the time that he was killed and someone got away. Uh, investigators said David Bell's killer shot him as he opened his door, his office door from the inside, possibly answering a knock or responding to a sound outside. Uh, Bell Carpentry Works was the name of their business. He was partners with Jimmy and Joe, his two brothers. Um, he, uh, David had a lot of NASCAR type memorabilia, very, very expensive stuff, uh, office equipment, all that in his office. And none of that was touched. The brothers ultimately hired private investigators to try to find out, you know, who could have did this or why. And, uh, everything that they found, ultimately the sheriff's office said, it's just hearsay evidence. It's nothing we can take to a grand jury. It's nothing we can do anything with the brothers offered a $25,000 reward. They bought several billboards in Livingston parish, uh, trying to get people to come forward and say, what the heck, you know, what happened? What do we know about David Bell's murder? And this went on for a very, very long time. Um, three months after David's death, Gretchen Bell filed lawsuits against State Farm, Ozark National Life Company, and Stonebridge Life. Uh, the total was $275,000. Um, she eventually dropped the claim against Stonebridge, but she did end up getting paid 
from uh, State Farm and the other company. Um, at one point, they didn't want to pay because David had put his mother as a subsequent um, or a secondary beneficiary on on one of the policies. So what what that means is if the police, if they paid Gretchen and then the police came out later and said, hey, uh, we found out she killed her husband and you really didn't have to pay, well, it's too late. But at that point, they would then have to pay the secondary beneficiary. So they were very concerned about that being the case. Um, anyway, uh, in 2003, Gretchen Bell ended up with the money from uh, the insurance and she was very angry at this point. She would give interviews with people and talk to friends and said she was really angry with David's family because she said that she really loved David and that they had just ruined her reputation by insinuating that she had something to do with this murder or that she did it for those insurance policies. Uh, she told uh, one reporter, they have ruined my reputation as a human being and they have run off all of my friends. David was my life, she said, and that's how it will always stay. That's what they told her or what she told the reporters when they asked her why she had moved her boyfriend into David's house. So that she was living with a guy at the time. The guy um, was a guy by the name of Dallas Arsenault. He was living with her. But, you know, she said, no, I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm seeing him, but I, I'll never marry again because I love David. And again, she went on to say that, you know, they had ruined her reputation. And one day she said, uh, one of these days, someone is going to talk and these people are going to owe me one heck of an apology. Well, guess what? One day someone did talk in 2005, Daryl Vern Armstrong the third, 36 years old of Lafayette, told police that Gretchen Bell Arsenault, 40, notice Arsenault. So by then she had actually married the guy she said she wasn't going to marry, uh, paid him, Daryl Vern Armstrong, and another man $5,000 to shoot David Bell. That's what he said. He said he and the other man attended a planning meeting with Dallas Arsenault in November of 2001 and watched Paul Marks, 46 of Holden, shoot David Bell the following December. In 2007, a Livingston Parish grand jury indicted all of those folks, the alleged conspirators, conspirators um, charging all three with second-degree murder. After announcing the indictment, Assistant District Attorney Charlotte Hebert told reporters that should a jury convict them, the law required the judge to sentence all three to life in prison without probation, parole, or suspension of a sentence. Following the arrest, uh, Livingston Parish Sheriff Willie Graves told reporters the detective did not charge anyone in 2005. They actually didn't make the arrest in 2007. He said they didn't arrest him in 2005 because they had no evidence to corroborate 
the confession. Remember, Armstrong confessed. He took a polygraph test. He passed it, but, but nobody else supported what he was saying. So therefore, they didn't arrest him in 2007 when they finally found some other witnesses who said, yeah, Armstrong's telling you the truth. And then they gave him another polygraph test. He passed that. Okay. So you'd think, well, this is not a cold case anymore. It's a closed case, except that before his trial in 2009, Daryl Armstrong recanted his story and the charges were thrown out. Today, the murder of David Bell is officially unsolved. What do you know? Everybody out there knows somebody who knows somebody who knows something. And that's about all the multiple crimes that we have in South Louisiana. If there's anything like that, anything that you, you can help with, uh, I urge you to come forward now. And if you don't know, then share. As we talk about these stories week to week, make sure that somebody else hears about them. Spread the word because, again, somebody knows something. And eventually, we will be able to get some peace of mind for the families of some of these victims. In some cases, we may actually, uh, as we did with Reginald Reed, we may find some guilty folks and get them into the place where they need to spend the rest of their lives. I'm H.L. Arledge, and this is by you justice. Thanks, everybody.